previously on The Big Bang Theory. That's why you didn't get elected. Your snake life. Life. Do, do they need to be regular? Marco Rubio and the snake. <laughs> <laughs> Little frat boy here. All right, man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, who are you, man? Yeah, sure. Guy? I swear to God, yeah, I'm You better hope you can be platforming. Tens of millions of views. InfoWars. Bigger than Rush Limbaugh. He knows who InfoWars well, is. But Playing you, this joke over here. That's why and the deplatforming didn't work. But, but, yeah. but here, here's, here's the question. Here's a question. Hey, don't touch me again. Well, sure, I'm just bad at you nicely. I know, but I don't want to be. I don't know. Oh, you want me to get arrested? You are. It's not just going to take my first amendment. It's not just enough to take my first amendment. Oh, oh, he'll beat me up. I didn't say that. I know I am, but he's so mad. You're not going to silence me. You're not going to silence me. Well, but there are people. You are like you are literally like little gangster thugs. There are there are people in this country. Rubio just threatened to physically take care of me. There are people who feel that they are being. We already got rid of my first amendment. He tells you China's the problem, which it is, but they're taking our free speech right now. Platforms, Facebook, there goes Rubio. Twitter. This is William Hunt, and you're listening to the Society Show. Hey now, hey now. Broadcasting live to tape from the new Society Show Theater in the most standoffish city in the world, outside of Austria, Seattle, Washington. I'm listening. This is the Society Show. You know, we're living in a society. Very briefly, I will be joined by Nick. Very thankful that Nick was able to come on the show. This is the second episode featuring Nick, uh, but it's been a while, and we talk, we're talk. we going to talk about some really interesting things, and I'll keep this short. So without further ado, here's Nick. This is William Hong, and you're listening to the Society Show. We've been on the run, driving in the sun, looking out for number one. California, here we come, right back where we started from. So, my name is Christian. I am joined by a second-time guest, Nick. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Oh, and I did want to say at the top of the show, because we mentioned it when you were last on, that uh, your Twitter account, but we might as well mention it at the top, your Twitter handle is 100,000 horses, correct? It's 1 million horses. Okay, 1 so, million horses. With, 10 million fireflies. With the, uh, with the number written out, so it's six zeros. Yes, okay. Um, yeah, how have you been since you were last on the show? That was, what, like last November, maybe? Um, yeah, I think so. It it feels like not a lot of time has gone by, but it also feels like a year has gone by. Um, we've had, let's see, all the election stuff uh, started up new new semester stuff at school yeah i don't know it's kind of it's kind of the situation where i'm in uh it feels like nothing has changed but um i think that's just life now 
Yeah, no kidding. I'm I'm getting really fed up with coronavirus, to be honest. I've been pretty patient about it, but uh, compared to a lot of people, it didn't make me crazy the way it made some people. But uh, I'm really over it at this point. Yeah, I've kind of I've kind of settled into it maybe a little bit better than I have in the past, but I get the I get the sense that once uh, like March 13th or 14th rolls around, which is when most people were like, "All right, it's time to lock down." The uh, the the one year anniversary is going to be pretty pretty rough. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah. I was actually so um I was in Washington, you know, where I live now, when the lockdown started. My sister got married on March 13th, and um, so I flew back for that, and then quarantine basically started that day or the next day. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Most people did, well, not most, I'd say about half the people did not show up to the wedding, but... Yeah, I remember the the 13th was, uh, it was a Thursday, so it was my last day of classes, and it was like, all right, we're going to go to spring break, and then we're going to stay out for two more weeks after spring break, and everyone's like, we're we're not coming back. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, and then one other thing I kind of wanted to talk about on the show, um, a few weeks ago now, I went to Ocean Shores, which is like a little beach town on the Washington coast. It's really close to Aberdeen where Kurt Cobain's from. And uh, mm-hmm. it's it's one of the weirdest places you can go. Like, uh, because, so it used to be a, you know, campground and none of the streets have sidewalks. There's sidewalks nowhere. But then people just started randomly building houses on these campground spots. So it's like, there's like weird mansions, eclectic mansions next to all these little trailers. It's just like the weirdest town, but uh, that's probably the most eventful thing I've done since we last talked. Well, I mean, that sounds more eventful than anything I've done. <laughs> it is a really weird place because I would say the Washington coast probably developed tourist infrastructure way less than any single coastline of any part of the u.s like there is there is no real draw out there yeah we do have some stories that uh, i would like to talk about but uh but first but first but first but first but first but first i do also have another quiz if you want to do it Uh, let's go see if i can uh, do better on this one the uh (laughs) I remember the uh, the president's one uh, did not treat me well last time. Oh yeah, so I was asking you which former president said a yeah. quote, correct? Mm-hmm. Or someone who was running for president and lost. I've looked on many women with lust. I've committed adultery in my heart many times. God knows I will do this and forgives me. Did John McCain say that or did Jimmy Carter say that? Uh, Carter. (laughs) That was, in fact, Jimmy Carter. (laughs) Yeah, so I have your results here. Last time you got three out of eight. Um, so let's see if you do better this time. All right, let's go. Um, let me... So th- for this quiz, I I was 
kind of looking at TV characters to get some ideas. Like maybe there could be some cool potential for a quiz. And I notice a trend in character names where a lot of times characters from 1980s cartoons had similar names to people from British period pieces. So this quiz will be, you will guess if a character is from an 80s cartoon or a British period piece. Does that sound good? <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. Number one. The, the character's name is Walter Hartford. Is he from the sci-fi western cartoon Adventures of the Galaxy Rangers? Or the British detective show set in the 50s called Grantchester? Hmm... Let's see. Uh, let's go with... I'm going to go ahead and say this character's from Cartoon. That is correct. Walter Hartford is from Adventures of the Galaxy Rangers. I've never heard of that, but... <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, number two. Henry Fitzroy... Henry Fitzroy, is he a character from the 1983 cartoon about a bumbling detective cyborg, Inspector Gadget? Or is he from the historical fiction show set in the 16th century, The Tudors? Uh, let's go, let's go with The Tudors on that one. That is correct. Henry Fitzroy is actually, in real life, he was the son of Henry VIII and his mistress. Oh. Yeah, I didn't know Com that either. <laughs> completely, completely <laughs> random guessing on these, but it's treating me a little bit better than the president so far. Yes. Number three. Miss Marigold. Miss Marigold. Is that a character from the 80s cartoon that followed the life of extremely, extremely wealthy 16-year-olds called Beverly Hills Teens? Or is it from the period piece that follows extremely wealthy aristocrats in the early 1900s, Downton Abbey? Um, I feel like th this is... This is the one where probably a lot of people I know have seen this and are going to uh, be mad that I have no idea, but I'm going to go ahead and guess against what my instinct is telling me and say that this is a cartoon character. That is incorrect. It is from Downton Abbey. Flew too close to the sun on that one. <laughs> yes. Okay, so that is two out of three. Pretty good so far. Uh, number four, Captain Homer Jackson. Is that a character from He-Man and the Masters of the Universe? Or the British drama about Jack the Ripper, Ripper Street? Uh, let's go... That doesn't sound cartoony enough. Let's go. Let's go with the Ripper Street one. That is correct. It's from Ripper Street. So we're at three out of four, halfway there. Uh, number right. f number five, Princess Castra. Princess Castra. Is that from the 
80s superhero cartoon, Defenders of the Earth, or the show about a Spanish princess who marries into British royalty called The Spanish Princess? Oh, um... Let's go cartoon on this one as well. That is correct. Princess Castra is from Defenders of the Earth. And number six, Eric the Cavalier. So Eric, comma, the Cavalier. Is that from the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon? Or is that from a British drama about society's elites in 1815 called Belgravia? Uh, let's go Belgravia on that. That is incorrect. It is from the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon. That sounds too French to be Dungeons and Dragons, but all right, all right. Yeah. <laughs> um, two more. Seven, number seven. Governor Wetworth. Governor Wetworth. Is that from the Belgian cartoon that's similar to the Smurf, Smurfs called the Snorks? Or is that cut from the British period piece sitcom starring Mr. Bean Rowan Atkinson, Blackadder? Uh, Blackadder? No, that is from the uh. Snorks. <laughs> that one was uh, I really wanted to include a Snorks character but it was hard because they live underwater and all the Snorks have names related to wetness <laughs> or water or something <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm familiar with the existence of the Snorks but I've never uh, gone down the, the Snorks uh, the Snorks rabbit hole <laughs> me neither I haven't seen a second of it but so you are at Five out of seven, correct? Yeah. Or maybe. Wait, four out maybe, of seven. Maybe four, yeah. Yeah, four out of seven. So no matter what you get on the last one, you still did better on your last appearance. So um, right. the last character, Brother Jerome. Is Brother Jerome a character on the Mr. T cartoon? Or was he a character on a British period piece about the, a 12th century detective called Cadfail, Brother Jerome. Mm, Alright. This one this is the important one. You know what? We are going to go with you said it was a you said a British detective show? What was the second option? Yeah, so it, the show Cad Fail, it's a British detective show, but it's set in the 12th century. Alright. We're gonna go we're gonna go with the Cad Fell. That is correct. I thought that would be one of the biggest trick questions because Brother Jerome seems just like a perfect name for a Mr. T cartoon. Yeah, I started like I don't know. I kind of get into my own head, and when they seem when they seem too too good, that's when I start doubting it. And so I figured I had to pull out something sort of unexpected on the last round. <laughs> yeah, but you got it. Strategy paid off a little bit better. So that puts you at um, 
five out of eight. It's pretty good. Uh, respectable. Yes. I'll take that over oh, last showing. Winner. Yeah, that that is up there with uh, some of the best performances. So congratulations. Um, and it's been probably a couple months since I did a quiz on the show. It's one of my favorite things to do. So thank you. Yeah, I mean, uh, good on you for, I have not heard of most of these shows before, so. Yeah, um, I had to get the answers. It was a lot of digging through Wikipedia, because I don't think yeah. I've ever watched a British period piece. Yeah, neither neither have I. <laughs> and despite watching, uh, I'm sure I've watched way more uh, old cartoons than those, but I still have not seen most of those cartoons either. <laughs> yeah, same. Um I, I actually take that back. I did watch, um, I don't know if this counts, but have you ever seen the HBO show Rome? No, I have not. It's pretty good. I mean, it only lasts two seasons, but if you're interested in Roman history, it's it's good. But uh, I guess that's technically British, but I think that's the extent of it. Yeah, that kind of doesn't have the, I don't know, when I think of British period piece, I have like a very specific thing in my mind. <laughs> yeah, same. <laughs> Um, yeah, before we transition into any news, though, I guess I'm just curious, is there any type of media, movies, TV, anything you want to talk about before we get going? Anything you've been watching, listening to? Oh, man. Um, what have I even been doing recently? I rewatched Wolf of Wall Street, uh, like last week. I haven't really been watching too much stuff. I've been trying to, like, uh, work on schoolwork so watch wolf of wall street um watch a bunch of random youtube stuff like normal and kind of going through a uh through a little bit of a uh old black metal kick so been listening to like oh that's cool yeah like dark throne and stuff like that um yeah i think that's pretty much pretty much what i've been up to yeah, I started watching uh, Boardwalk Empire, which I had never seen before. It's a pretty cool show, but uh, have you ever seen it? No, I haven't. Is that the one? Is that the one where where there's like a person with a mask on it? Yeah, I mean, I'm only in the first season. That character has shown up, but only a few times. He'll probably get more important, I think. Um, you mean where, like, half of his face is kind of blown off, so he, like, wears, like, half of a mask over it? Yeah, yeah, I knew. I knew I've, I've, seen, I've seen images of that character, but I don't really know anything about the show itself. It's uh, basically... So... It reminds me a lot of kind of a typical format of an HBO show. It's very much like Sopranos. It's uh-huh. very similar to Deadwood, but it's like um, Steve Buscemi is the the kind of Tony Soprano character. And um, I just don't know if he fill, can fill that character quite as well as um, what's his name? The Tony Soprano guy. <laughs> James Gandolfini. Yeah, uh, I'm terrible with names. Yeah, so. I forget his name. <laughs> yeah. We were going to talk about the Diatlov Pass real quick, um, but before we do that, I did want to talk about 
um, Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bozo is stepping down from the CEO position of Amazon, and this is pretty big news, I guess. I mean, he'll still be a, one of the most major investors in the company. He'll still be profiting the same off of it, but he just seemingly won't actually be working there. Do you have any thoughts on this? Uh, it was very unexpected, um, especially because you know, coming off of coming off of our COVID year, where you know there were so many headlines about how much richer all of the all of our uh, favorite billionaires have gotten. You know, tracking tracking like you know Bezos' wealth was, was such a big thing, and he's he's the face of the company to the point that he's probably, I mean, probably more so than like any other CEO or you know until he until he uh, you know moved over that he was kind of like synonymous with the company, like you thought of Amazon and you just thought of him. So it was very unexpected. Um, after that last year, I, I would never have guessed that he was. He was stepping down, so uh, I don't know. I don't know what's gonna what's gonna be going on there, or it'd be, it'd be interesting once more of the uh, once more of his motivations uh, and some more explanation for that come out. But definitely was not expecting that one. Yeah, I wonder if his whole if the extent of his motivation was just like I have. I mean, he has more than enough money to. Uh, make his money make money mm -hmm. obviously like he's probably raking in so much money um completely independent of amazon just by like how much i guess stocks he probably owns he probably owns a majority of amazon and so he's just kind of retiring but won't be making <laughs> any less money presumably yeah i mean i i don't i guess i don't have the uh the the winner ceo mindset but like if i was bezos i would have retired so long ago like he he he, he yeah, made enough no money kidding. to be good for life like quite a while ago <laughs> yeah, I always wonder that. I wonder that with like really, really older guys like Warren Buffett. Um, for one, I don't know how he's still alive. I mean, he's 90 and he's famously like extremely uh, unhealthy. But like, why not just give up? I guess because you just make money by not really doing anything. So why retire? I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, with Warren Buffett, I think it's just that like his... All of his investments are, are relatively uh, easy for him to do, and I think he kind of gets a kick out of being the investor guy. And I think if he gives that up, he he won't be the sort of the figurehead for when, when you're trying to reach for a, a rich investor type. Yeah, and I think Warren Buffett, I'm not like a huge finance guy, but I'm under the impression that he makes all his money not really by stock trading or riding any momentum or doing any kind of tricky stuff. He just literally has a ton of money that he reinvests and then makes a ton more money. Yeah, all of his all of his investment stuff is just like very safe, very normal, you know, like index funds yeah and that type of stuff yeah every so often you'll hear about him investing in like you know yeah like index funds like various like precious metals just stuff that's gonna like be guaranteed to make you money over the long run and he's just, he's just got enough money to put in that he can he can profit off of it but i think he's he's pretty in the investment world he's pretty notorious for just being like very safe and very traditional and just having a lot of money <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. And was, one more thing before we get to D at Love Pass. I did uh, remember how last, I think it was last month when people were talking about how uh, the ch- Chinese billionaire Jack Ma had disappeared. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so he actually reappeared uh, pretty recently, and it was that kind of a funny thing. Let me find it. He was like in a video teleconference for elementary school or something. I don't know. I totally but, missed uh, this. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to mention that on the show because I, at this point, no one talked about his return, and so I'm assuming there's like millions and millions of Americans who assume that China disappeared their richest person and will never know that he didn't actually disappear. Wow, yeah, that, I definitely did not hear anything about that. That's pretty funny. Yeah, let's see. So it says... He made a public appearance again on January 20th, speaking uh, via video link to a group of rural teachers at a charity event. That reminds <laughs> me about how they kept saying like how Kim Jong-un uh, was secretly dead and then he like showed up at the opening of a manure factory <laughs> <laughs> like a week later. Yeah, that's pretty funny. I'm saying like uh, apparently this was a... Uh... I like whenever you just like type something into Google, you're just like, you get a barrage of just like uh, YouTube videos with horrible looking thumbnails that are guaranteed to be a disaster. Here, here's <laughs> yes. one from a month ago called What Really Happened to Jack Ma. Uh, so. <laughs> I'm sure they have a, a lot of insight in, in that video. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be a very informative watch. Okay, so let's talk about the uh, Dyatlov Pass incident. Um, and you kind of told me, a li- I heard a little bit about this story, but uh, it is pretty interesting. Um, I will say, like, you sent me the National Geographic link uh, to this article, and I tried to read it, but I had this thing that kept popping up, like, you need an email account to read this. So, I'll be honest, my knowledge about it is kind of just assembled from random sources online, but... Uh, um, as so my, I guess my point is I'll, I might want a little help from you, uh, but uh, um, do you have any preliminary thoughts on the incident at all or anything like that? Um, yeah, so I mean, I mean, the incident has always been kind of interesting because of how much uh, how many conspiracy theories popped up around it, um, which I think is pretty natural for anything that anytime people go out into nature and something bad happens there there's bound to be a bunch of conspiracies um but what i don't know what's kind of interesting about this is that i i mean i think for for a long time like the the pretty reasonable explanation for what happened was an avalanche you know the basics of the story are back in 1959 these um you know these people are out um and they're where they're going on like a they're like skiing they're they're out in the wilderness they're taking this this big long um like a big long hike and they're supposed to show back up they don't people go out and search for them and they kind of find some mysterious uh unexplainable things you know they have like tents that are cut open they they find 
their bodies that are in various states of undress. There's some sort of unexplainable wounds, like one of the people's missing an eye and, and so on and so forth. So a lot of the stuff around the incident sort of lends itself to speculation. Um, Cause I think that the, the Soviet government at the time was acting a little bit weird. Like some of the high level officials were, um, you know, kind of paying more attention to it than you would think of if, you know, some people got, you know, stranded out in the, the cold and died. And, of course, it's during the Cold War, so people start speculating about, you know, Soviet uh, military technology, and they were, you know, they were testing, uh, I think there was, like, mining technology, people saw some, like, orange lights in the sky, then, of course, you know, people who are who are, um, into cryptid stuff, they believe that, you know, a Yeti got them... Uh, there's also there's theories that the uh, the native people of the area attacked them. So there's there's like a million different explanations, and um, like the rational explanation was always like an avalanche probably got them. That's kind of reasonable. Um, but there was sort of some uh, details about the avalanche that didn't really line up too well because they were experienced, so they wouldn't really camp in a place that was in, in danger of an avalanche. There wasn't really a lot of, uh, like, the evidence of an avalanche wasn't really there. And so all these conspiracies pop up over the years. So, like, uh, in 2019, the Russian government was like, all right, we're going to reopen this. We're going to get this thing solved. Stop with the conspiracies. Um, and, of course, a lot of people still didn't believe that because, you know, people are are, are, are um, inclined to, you know, not not believe that and, and go back to belief in, in things like Yetis and stuff. Um, but the, the recent story that just came out a couple, a couple days ago, and it's been recorded a couple places. I, I just had the national geographic one. Cause that was the, that was the one that was going around Twitter. But um, this guy, uh, Johan Guame, I'm probably going to mispronounce that name horribly, but um, him and some people were, were working um, on figuring this out. And they actually in, probably uh very uh pop culturally relevant um news uh decided to like contact the people who worked on the film frozen because he was impressed by the the snow movement in in the movie um now i've never seen frozen but i can't imagine that most of the people who saw it were thinking about you know snow physics and stuff like that but yeah, anyway, they worked on the models and they sort of came up with this theory that it was a slab avalanche, which was, like I said, kind of the most prevailing common uh, explanation for it. Um, but they kind of, through making the models that the, uh, by adapting the, um, the, the frozen animations, as well as like some US car crash data back from like the 70s where they did experiments about car crashes, they were sort of able to piece together a lot of things. So, you know, the, the, the cliff face actually was steeper than it looked. So there's no way they would have known that it was dangerous and it didn't really take that much snow. So that's why it would have covered back up. And, you know, some of the injuries are consistent with like, um, you know, a, a, a really strong impact. And so they kind of like, kind of went back and forensically pieced together, um, a pretty reasonable explanation. And, you know, there's, I guess, I guess importantly enough for the story, there's enough details that are still left out. Like, you know, you can't explain why somebody was missing eyes and stuff, you know, even though it was obviously like, you know, a, a predator or something got them. But 
there, there, there seems to be enough stuff that can never be explained so that the, you know, the, the people who believe in Yetis and stuff will, will still be able to latch onto that. But, um, but yeah, so th- this was kind of another, um, possibly the, maybe the last big break in sort of figuring out and, and explaining, um, how all that went down. Uh, let's go back. I want to like really focus in on the uh, injuries that people got because I feel like that is a big reason why there's so much intrigue around this because mm-hmm. some of these injuries are so weird. Like, um, so yeah, two of them had really bad skull damage. T- two of them had uh, chest trauma, I think, and those seem to be the people who. Um, died instantly, not the ones who had hypothermia, um, but the ones who ended up dying of hypothermia and were ill-dressed for the weather. Um, they were the ones who, you know, um, what I read said that two of them were missing their eyes, maybe only one, I'm not sure, but one was also missing their tongue, mm-hmm. and this is a really weird detail, one was missing their eyebrows, which I don't even know what would cause that. Um, yeah, I didn't see that, I, I have no idea what would cause that one. Yeah, and then another weird detail about it is four of them were found um like face down in a stream Mm -hmm. which i guess that doesn't necessarily mean much but it is kind of a peculiar detail yeah i think that um i'm trying to think of i'm trying to think of all of the various the various theories um so with the with the the ones that died instantly who had like the, the the um you know, like the, the injuries, like the, the crushed skulls and stuff. Um, that was kind of addressed in the, in that, um, car crash data, because apparently when they slept and like, like when they, when they slept in their tents, they would make their bedding and like put it on top of their skis. So they did have a rigid base underneath them. And then you have like all that snow falling at them. So that would kind of, you know that would that would kind of be a situation where you're getting a lot of impact with this rigid thing behind you, um, which was kind of part of what they were modeling with the the car crash data. Um, and then I think so. So the avalanche starts, and then probably some of them die like that, and then probably everyone else is scrambling. So you you, you end up like you know not fully dressed or you know anything like that. Um, and then I don't know that 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 still is like the thing that that I guess still makes it compelling because some people have said the state of undress is you know just because when you start freezing to death you know and you start taking your clothes off it's a pretty pretty well documented phenomenon. Um, somebody said that there was evidence that like maybe one of them had like tried to climb a tree or something. Um, and then I think a lot of the the speculation about the eyes and the tongues and stuff are still kind of I think most people point to like uh scavengers or something i don't really know i don't really know what the uh the ecosystem is like um in that area and like what kind of what kind of animals they have but um yeah i don't know there's still so much uh yeah i will say a lot of the theories are you know really thin like the yeti i mean you know think what you want about the yeti but it's still a thin theory and then like the idea that the indigenous population did it, I mean, that's just, like, 
that's just classic like blame the minority but the one theory that really kind of interests me the most is um how many people believe that they were caught in a soviet military exercise and um there is some ways to corroborate this a little bit like the soviet military was documented to be testing parachute mines in that area and basically parachute mines blow up before they reach the ground so they send like chunks of metal down and the types of injuries a lot of them got are consistent with parachute mines because you'll often get like bad internal injury but not as much external injury but even still, I mean, the avalanche theory makes a lot more sense. This was just the only one that didn't seem like pure, just rank speculation. There was like a little bit there. Yeah, I mean, I, I saw something where um, some other people that were like vaguely in the area, uh, they saw orange lights up in the sky, supposedly, on the on the day. So I mean, there there were some there were some witnesses who who saw some weird things that they couldn't explain, which you know goes further to um, you know kind of fuel speculation and stuff. But I don't, yeah, I don't think it would be I don't think it would be too far out of the question to to think that there could be some you know s- testing of some kind, um, you know, especially because like you know if you're testing explosions and stuff, you can also trigger avalanches by doing things like that. So it's it's not like you know, it's not necessarily like a situation where that would preclude, you know, the the idea of there being an avalanche. You know, you could, based on whatever whatever they're testing or doing, it could have triggered an avalanche or something of that nature. Yeah, and I was actually looking into slab avalanches because I don't really know the difference between types of avalanches, and I did learn that. Um, it said about 90% of people who die in an avalanche die in a slab avalanche. I think a lot of it's because, like, if you see those videos of skiers going down really steep hills mm-hmm. and they trigger an avalanche, those are always slab avalanches. Okay, yeah, I, yeah, I didn't know that. Um, I didn't know that they were they were that um, they were that much of the the avalanche death toll. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I watched a video. Yeah, I watched a video of the dude like explaining the, uh, and like with like little little models of the the snow coming unstuck. Yeah, it, it's actually pretty cool to watch videos of slab avalanches because it l- looks like a river of snow like mm-hmm. flowing over other snow. Basically, what happens is if a heavy layer of snow is on top of a lighter layer and then the lighter layer collapses, then the whole like just like sheet of heavier snow slides down at once. Don't really want to put myself in any of those situations. Uh, it doesn't seem like a very fun time. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, so I guess to ra- wrap up about this, it does seem pretty likely, um, you know, probably probably most likely, m- more likely than ever that it was caused by an avalanche. And that has always been seemingly the prevailing theory. It's just there's a lot of people who, you know, kind of have um circumstantial arguments against it like oh they were experienced hikers they would know not to stop in the path of an avalanche like that type of weak type of counter refutation yeah yeah i think um 
probably more so the the stuff I was looking into with this is like maybe not as much convincing everybody that it was an avalanche because I mean that was the that was the official that was the official government line in 2019 like they were like all right people it's it's not a yeti it's an avalanche um, but part of this was like sort of explaining the how the avalanche actually worked to sort of explain how they could get in that situation where. Yes, the, the, the cliff face was steep enough to cause this, but it didn't look like it was. So even an experienced, you know, a person with experience in that in those conditions would not have looked at that situation and thought it was a danger, um, even though it was. Um, so just some kind of things like that, like sort of like chipping away at some of those little details to, to explain away the, um, you know, the little the little hang ups that, that people might have with that story or you know, like, why wasn't there any evidence of an avalanche found? And it's like, well, you know, it really didn't require that much snow. So, like, you know, the falling snow could could replace it. So I, I think I think it was kind of more interesting. Well, it was it's kind of interesting, the idea that uh, scientists were, were working with people who worked on the film Frozen, um, first of all. But I think I think more so than proving the avalanche theory, more so like explaining the little details of it to sort of help. Uh, help explain why it's why it's the the likely scenario yeah and i think the real piece of evidence that underlines most alternative theories is just the fact that they couldn't find any tracks for any sort of beast or human Mm -hmm. who may have confronted them yeah yeah they're, they're they're really most of those theories are just based on very very little evidence like you have like what's actually on the bodies and then you're kind of making up stories to go along with it so do you want to transition to the uh, coup in myanmar yeah let's do it i will say there's not a, a ton to say about it because we don't exactly know the motivations of the the people who uh, organized the coup per se, but uh, I do want to go into some background about Myanmar's government because they do have a history of coups. There was a 1962 military coup that lasted until 1974, um, and then the military voluntarily gave up some of its power to a civilian government. Uh, but the civilian government was called the Burma Socialist Program Party, and their claimed ideology was the Burmese way to socialism, which is interesting because you never even really hear about uh, Myanmar as being a ever having any sort of socialist government. And a big reason why is they weren't really socialists. It was like a isolationist party that emphasized um rural and farming labor it was very xenophobic and anti-chinese um but i do think it's interesting that they labeled themselves socialist yeah um i don't know maybe it it, it does seem like a like a like a popular thing to want to throw on there i i guess like it it, it probably creates a at least upon reading the name, like it, it makes you think that it's like for the people or, or by the people or something. So it might be it might be positive branding in that sense. Yeah, I also think uh, socialists calling anything socialist was uh, 
just uh, kind of the trend in like Southeast Asia in the seventies. Yeah. Honestly, like because you know Pol Pot, who completely uh, labeled himself a socialist for opportunistic reasons, I think. Uh, it was just a label used by political opportunists at the time and place. Yeah. Um, but the the party was still basically controlled by the military, so there was never really uh, a loss of military control until in 1988 there were mass protests uh, against the military. And during these protests, Aung San Suu Kyi... Um, Oops, let me say that Aung San Suu Kyi uh, emerged as a national icon and she's kind of like the main character of the coup because even though she's not elected to government, she probably is the most powerful or if she is elected to government, it's a small role. I don't remember, but she is still probably the most powerful politician in Myanmar and she was detained by the military coup. Yeah, and that's coming off of because uh, she was uh, she she was basically uh, locked up for for a long time last time before they handed over the uh, the government to to elections, and now now apparently she's right back in it. Yeah, and I I do want to focus on her transition to her a little bit because you know she is the symbol for national democracy in Myanmar, but she. Uh, also is very much into perpetrating and denying the Rohingya genocide, which is basically in one of the more western, southwestern provinces. There's the Rohingya people who are Muslim. They are a religious minority in a majority Buddhist country. Um, and yeah, she's done some really repulsive things. Like she used both sides rhetoric around it when the military was literally like killing people and forcing them out of the country. Um, yeah, it's just pretty ugly stuff. Yeah, she got some backlash. Didn't they? Didn't they give her the the Nobel Peace Prize in like '91? And then ever since then, they're like, uh, maybe we maybe we made a mistake here. Yeah, well, people have been trying to get the Nobel Peace Prize to revoke her prize, um, and they've basically said, uh, well, maybe we want to, but we kind of don't have any way to take away a prize, which seems kind of like a BS answer to me, but... Yeah, I mean, I mean, Kissinger has a Nobel Prize, so... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, no kidding, um... Yeah, some of the, like, for example, um, the Dalai Lama, Desmond Tutu, and more um, have basically all condemned her because she, like, for example, there was an incident where a U.S. ambassador to Myanmar referred to Rohingya people as living in Myanmar and she scolded him after and was basically like no they're not a recognized ethnicity of Myanmar that like basically saying you cannot acknowledge that they live here uh to the ambassador yeah and she and she also there was an incident where she was being interviewed uh, about the situation and then at by a Muslim person, and then after the interview, uh, she 
complained to the the network like how could you let me be interviewed by a muslim person wow that's uh not not great from a from a pr perspective <laughs> yeah but at the same time uh neither the military or uh Aung San Suu Kyi are good for Rohingya people. There's basically no side that is pro Rohingya that has any power. Yeah, they're in a pretty tough situation. Um and now what was it they, they they've declared that there'll be like a year of military rule and everything's kinda of still up in the air right now as to like what actually is gonna happen. Right? Yeah, so they yeah, they declared a state of emergency for one year. Presumably, they're going to have control until they start other elections. And like I said, it's not exactly clear what their motivations are. I just think the 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 most central motivation is the military is worried that their role in the political world of Myanmar is diminishing, and they really want to reestablish themselves as the dominant political force yeah because they had um when was it wasn't their election their election was in november and uh it was sort of cementing the idea that they were losing relevance yeah which uh the military accused that election of being rigged which is something they have a lot of experience doing. So in 1988, how I mentioned earlier, when there were all those protests and uprisings against the uh, military government, the military had so much hubris that they thought they would win that they were like, fine, let's have an an election. And then the military lost horribly, and then they did not acknowledge the election. Classic move. (laughs) Yes. Um... Yeah, so I'll keep my eye on that. I am curious to learn more about what, why it happened. Maybe we won't ever really get a firm answer, but do you have any final thoughts on this? Um, no, yeah, just uh, just kind of similarly curious to see where it, where it goes. I mean, I found out about it probably the way that most people did with that video on Twitter, where it's kind of like <laughs> yeah. kind of like weird clickbait of like of like, oh, this lady's doing a. Uh, uh, an aerobics class, and also there's a coup going on. You're like, wait, there's a coup? What? When? Since when? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty classic. I'm actually in the midst of making a trailer for the podcast. Um, both like have an audio and video element, mm-hmm. and I'm gonna include some clips from that in it. Yeah, that, that's um, that's definitely uh, that's definitely uh, already a classic moment, I guess. It, yeah, it definitely says a lot about society. It, it really so. does. Society. You know, we're living in a society. But I would like to briefly talk about these protests in India. All right, let's move over to India. Sweet. Yeah, so uh, these protests, they have been going on since last August. And they reached international news in November of last year when 10 trade unions united for a general strike and these unions together represent 250 million people uh, which may have made it the largest strike in history Uh, it lasted 24 hours but it shut down five whole states of india uh, which is pretty impressive 
So, yeah, I guess, do you have any thoughts about the the Indian protests? Have you heard much about them before they kind of popped up again in the news? I'd heard about them, you know, in small ways. I feel like it hasn't really gotten a ton of coverage here for how big it is. Um, and I, I mean, I don't know. I think part of that might be that a lot of the stuff that they're striking for and fighting against over there is basically the way that uh, agriculture is run here. So they're kind of resisting having their uh, having their agricultural markets basically turned into you know the the American ones that have pretty much put small farmers out and corporatized everything. So I mean maybe there might be a, there might be some element of that to how maybe it hitting too close to home. Um, but I really, yeah, I really haven't heard, heard too much about it. It'll, it'll pop up occasionally. Um, I think that I probably heard about it. I probably, I think I heard about it at the end of last year in like November when it started to get more traction, but more so in the sense that people were saying like, why aren't we talking about this more? And then it kind of went quiet until um, a little bit more recently. Yeah, like, I think they've been sustained, but also, like, typical protests kind of come in waves. Um, yeah, I don't remember, I remember in November reading about the general strike, but uh, I, and I remember people being like, why aren't we talking about this more? And, but something in American politics that was really, like, trivial and dumb was happening at the same time that really overshadowed it, but I don't remember what it was. Oh, yeah. Maybe it was huh. just the election-related stuff? The The election was a, a comical disaster that lasted, like, three months, so it, it, it kind of, like, it kind of overwhelmed all news outlets for for a long time. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if like, I don't know, Trump, Trump sent out a tweet and that like shut down the media for a week or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I do want to, you know, I put on my policy wonk hat to understand the policies they are protesting because I don't know if you looked at them, but they're very kind of, uh, conceptual so maybe the right word for it it's like not very concrete policies it's more related to like trading it in an esoteric way can you make much sense of these policies um yeah so from from what i have i, I i'm also not uh you know i'm not a agricultural policy person but from from the, the sense that i'm getting is it's something where the government is saying, hey, we're going to do stuff that's going to be beneficial for you, but it's pretty easy to see how, how it can easily go astray. Because um, currently they have some regulations as to their, their markets, um, whether that is, you know, minimum, if you're a farmer and you're growing stuff, there's sort of a minimum price that you're guaranteed, but there's also a maximum cap that's set, you know, to help like regulate food prices and stuff. And they're, they're wanting to get rid of that. Um, they are, they're also just like removing a bunch of regulations, which I don't know from, from the sound of it, they're trying to 
make their agricultural system work a lot more like um, like what we have in the States. And I was kind of poking around some um, old stories about U.S. farmers because it was making me think of it. And I found I found some story I forget where it was at, but it was just like like interviewing some farmers and and somebody was saying like oh yeah you know there used to be a bunch of family farms around here that all shut down and we basically only all we grow now is grain that we sell to the big commercial farms to feed their livestock, you know because these big agricultural forces have taken over everything. Yeah. And, wow. Yeah, and so I think that that's yes, I think that's kind of what the, the people in India are afraid of because. If you remove all these regulations about like what you can sell for and minimum prices, then it's going to be like the same thing that, you know, has happened here countless times. Like, um, you know, I mean, like bookstores died because Amazon came in and said, hey, we have all the power. We can sell it for as cheap as we want. You know, that's happened with every industry. So I think that they're they're afraid that that's also going to happen where like these big corporate farms are going to be able to come in, undersell everybody and then basically have like a monopoly on um on agriculture production, which th- that that's kind of what stood out to me as like the main the main objection. It just seemed like that that push to deregulate is always a a push to you know, let the let whatever big probably evil corporation who wants to take power to take power. So that that's what I got from it. Yeah, I think that kind of going off of that, uh, I think a big reason that we did not hear about it as much in the U.S. is because the, U- the U.S. wants this to happen because it would presumably better integrate uh, Indian farming labor into the global economy. Uh, it'll basically, like reorient India's food focus from domestic um there's even there's some mechanisms I describe as almost like distributionists like the whole price control of food like that is not a typical um market function and it wouldn't work if you're integrated into like an international food chain so uh it seems like the US would be one of the countries benefiting from something like this yeah, the U.S. would benefit from uh, the the push to to globalize um, their food production, and yeah, it's it, it's one of those situations where it probably just is a matter of the the U.S. would support this. They would support the new policies. They would support the you know the corporatizing of the agriculture. They would support all the stuff. So it would be kind of weird to make it a big news item to say. Hey, they're doing all this stuff over here that we think is good, and that's led to the biggest strike in ever. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I'll I'll bre- very briefly talk about exactly what's in these policies. So, one of them, the first one, is basically many types of food are considered essential, which means the Indian government can regulate the price if the price of food starts skyrocketing or dropping. Uh, And the bill would declassify food as essential, which basically means the government wouldn't have a mechanism to control the price. And that on its face, you can see why that would hurt farmers because the people negotiating the price would be the people with more money, which would be the corporations. As it always always is. 
<laughs> yes, and then so another one of the there's basically three bills that all the go go together. One of them is they would allow farming contracts to be signed before any crops are produced or a price is set. And farmers are opposed to this kind of for the same reasons. Like uh, the corporations have more resources, more money, um, so they kind of have more leverage in these contracts. And and then the final policy is basically it would make it so farmer like. Basically, right now in India, farmers produce products uh, for their region. Like, it's very, like, a regional product, uh, how you'd imagine food should be. But they're making it so farmer produce doesn't have any geographical limitation. Um, But the big impact of this is it makes it so individual Indian states couldn't regulate or find trades um, which is, you know, that would also heavily incentivize global trade because, you know, they they'd always be seeking the cheapest markets. Yeah, um, it, yeah, it really just does feel like a. It feels like a push to make India more of a of a player on the the world stage because. Right now, um, a lot of the the essential the essential exports from there are, are various spices and stuff. Um, but it seems like they, they would like to expand that to be more um, rather than focused on those individual, you know, rather than growing food for uh, your local area, it, it becomes a situation where you're, where you're growing things for in the international market um, and probably in a, in a in a new capacity where, you know, you're not a, a family farm that's been around for generations, but you're part of some big corporate farming conglomerate who, who has their eyes set on, you know, trading with other countries rather than just growing food for the people. So I, 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 I totally get why, I totally get why all the farmers are, you know, very opposed to this. Cause I think that like, the the percentage of the population um i don't know if this is accurate or not but i think it was it said like half of the people there like depend on agricultural stuff as their their way to make a living so it, it's a it's a massive part of both their society and their their economy and this is potentially jeopardizing a lot of that yeah and one one last detail that i picked up from it that is kind of interesting to me i don't know enough about uh Indian politics or geography to have any insight into this, but apparently uh, in southern India, the the farmers are a lot more um, not opposed to the or not in favor of the law, but they're not quite as opposed. They haven't been protesting in South India, and so I just wonder what kind kind of uh, differences between culture the economy exists between north and south india that causes that type of divide yeah i don't know uh similarly i don't i don't have a uh i don't i don't have enough of a uh a knowledge of how all that stuff works over there to know why there'd be there'd be differences yeah maybe Um, that's a subject for another episode um but uh, the last thing I have to say on India is so uh, Rihanna got involved with it. Um, she tweeted out basically like 
would she say, why aren't people talking about this? Um, the farmers' protests and... Greta Thunberg said a similar thing, but uh, this has resulted in the most deranged right-wing Indians calling uh, Rihanna and Greta Thunberg terrorists. Yeah, uh, getting a big backlash, uh, Rihanna getting a big backlash from from India's right-wing over calling attention to... The farmers' protests—that's only something that can happen in um, the, the the current the current state of our society. Um, it it is kind of interesting though, because I know that like part of the government crackdown on all the stuff, um, and I and I guess I, I think a lot of stuff has been ramping up too, because there was a there was a, a situation recently where somebody actually died at like one of the protests, and like like a bunch of like farmers and and police officers got wounded so i think they like really cracked down on they like were shutting down the internet and like arresting journalists and all kinds of stuff um but yeah there's like a very 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 big effort to just kind of like keep this under wraps you know mass censorship uh and and then you when you have when you have somebody as famous uh with as much of a reach as rihanna uh, calling attention to it. And I have to imagine that, like, you know, probably a lot of her fan base and the people that follow her on Twitter would have no idea this was going on otherwise. So it's For probably sure. one of the more effective ways to disseminate information now is to get Rihanna to tweet about it. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I mean, this is a bit of a detour, but it does remind me a lot of how when when that GameStop stuff was going on and uh, Elon Musk tweeted about it and then it came out that he had already bought a bunch of stock in GameStop uh, so he was kind of purposely pumping up a stock that he was already invested in um, I guess that's not that similar but it does remind me of how like if Rihanna tweets about something it does kind of change uh, how people relate to it that's the power it has yeah, this is this is only tangentially related, but did you see that thing about um, Elon Musk's Twitter feed? So like maybe like a month ago or something, he he told he tweeted out to all of his followers that they should get on Signal, but uh, a bunch of people took that as a sign to invest in Signal, but they're <laughs> they they all invested in some company that had a similar name but was entirely unrelated so oh, the, God. The, this random company's stock shot up like 12,000% because people thought it was what he was talking about when it wasn't at all yeah the, i know a similar thing happened when um people first started using zoom oh yeah yeah that's right <laughs> like some stock for a different company called zoom shot up <laughs> yeah but um yeah, and then w getting back to Rihanna, though, I have to say, like, after, um, so that article that we were, Va the Vox article about mm -hmm. Rihanna tweeting about it, so they linked to a Bollywood actor who's very famous, very patriotic, who was uh, kind of telling Rihanna to shut up and saying that farmers are terrorists and all that, and reading through the replies on that and kind of looking into right-wing India Twitter, it's almost baffling to me how similar their talking points are to right-wing talking points in the U.S. Like, where do they get this playbook? Yeah, I, that's kind of one of, the, one of the weird things is sort of the way that 
right-wing culture has sort of become this global thing um, because there's there's like there's MAGA QAnon protests in like Germany and Canada and all these places that are not America. Uh, <laughs> yes, Canada's you know America, but not uh, not the U.S. Um, but yeah, like all these European countries and there's like there there's just like adopting the exact same culture um, is weird. And I, I guess like, you know, I mean, I guess that's what the internet does for you is that if you're a right-wing Indian person, you're consuming the same kind of right-wing stuff as everyone else. So you're adopting this sort of standardized right-wing internet troll culture, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. It, it seems like the uh, right-wing Indians took a break from yelling at right-wing Pakistanis to yell at Rihanna instead. Yeah, I haven't I haven't dug into the uh, I haven't dug into all those replies, but I'm sure there's I'm sure there's some uh, some gems in there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and the, I guess one other thing I wanted to emphasize about this is it is a pretty uh, along ethnic and religious lines because the center of the protest is in the Punjabi region, which is close to Pakistan, and it has a lot of Sikh people. Uh, right-wing Indians tend to be very Hindu nationalists, so they're skeptical of Sikhs. They're skeptical of anyone close to Pakistan. Um I maybe I should just get more interested in Indian politics and talk about it more. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't. It probably is. It probably is pretty interesting to to dive into because I know that there was um, generally the only time I ever really come into contact with with Indian politics is like when like when Trump was getting buddy buddy with their government, and they threw that. Remember that really really bizarre surreal. Uh, like rally they had where Trump was talking about how pro India was. And then they had like the dancers dancing to Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Um, maybe that was a different time, but was that, I think that was around the same time Jeff Bezos went to India too. And wore that like Indian get up. It might've been, I don't remember. It, I don't even remember how least... long ago it was. <laughs> yeah. I know both of those were at least in the past few years, but, um, yeah, I feel like I've said about the extent that I have to say about uh, all of our topics today. Um, seems like a good time to wrap up. you have any closing thoughts? Uh, no, I don't think so. Well, uh, so where can people find you online? I know we talked about it at the beginning. but So best place to find me online is my Twitter, um, which uh, I'll say that the handle again, but it's uh, one million horses with one million written out as a number, and that has a link to my website, which has all my other stuff. So if you find my Twitter, you can find anything I've done. If you if you happen to enjoy things like uh, poems or or any of the other stuff I do. <laughs> yeah, awesome. So uh, for the listeners, you can follow the show on Twitter at society underscore show. You can follow me personally at Christian is cool. Christian IZ cool. I keep uh, cycling between keeping my t- tweets protected or not because I'm applying to jobs. But uh, and then finally, you can actually. So in a couple weeks, there will be a one year anniversary of when this podcast started. And I will be playing voicemails on it. So if you want to leave a voicemail to the show, call 971-BETH-2. 
one eu that's if you use the number or the letters but if you just use the numbers it's 971-238-4138 thanks again nick for being on the show thanks for having me till next time take care of yourself and each other hi everyone this is william hung thank you for supporting this show